you're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. Welcome back. It's air cargo peak season and guess what? There is rates movement out there. We'll be hearing why. What's known Alaska has been doing to Trans-Pacific traffic? What global-to-global trade is exactly? And if Ford has finally cracked the e-commerce business? But we don't stop there. We're examining who is doing what with capacity at Flexport and WestJet. And more cheekily and allegedly at SEVA and CMA CGM. And finally, we'll be explaining just why the great and the good of air cargo journalists are up in arms with Stephen Pullmans and took him to task earlier this month at Yaka's Executive Summit. Discussing all this with me is TAC Index's Neil Wilson, Yossi Shakroon, CEO of the Challenge Group. We'll be hearing from DHL Global Forwardings Air Freight Man in the Asia Pacific. It's Stefan Treber. And from the Lodestar, we have the wonderful Charlotte Goldston and our never less than straight talking publisher. It's Alex Lenane. You mentioned you liked interviewing Stephen Pullman. And uh, yeah, he's, he's great and he's interesting and all the rest of it. But um, I'm not going to interview the managing director of Air Cargo Week. I'm just not. So, you know, what's Jeffrey going to do about that? I don't know. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. As ever, before we get going, you've heard it before, but I like to remind you that you can find this podcast on all platforms. Please do like and review us. It really does help us keep providing you with free content. We're also on the lodestar.com where you can subscribe to receive this podcast direct to your inbox. Now, I said earlier in the intro that the great and the good of air cargo journalists took Stephen Pullman's to task at Tiaka's Executive Summit in Brussels earlier this month. Now, for those of you who don't know, Tiaka is the International Air Cargo Association and Stephen is its chairman. Well, two of the journalists who are in Brussels were from the Lodestar, no less, and they are here with me today. First up is publisher Alex Lenane. Hello, Alex. Hi, Mike. And uh, joining us for the first time on the Lodestar podcast is Charlotte Goldston, who recently graduated from Cardiff University with first degree honours in English language. Uh, Welcome to the Lodestar podcast, Charlotte, and welcome to the Lodestar in general. Hi, Mike. Thank you so much for having me on. I've been really, really looking forward to this. (laughs) Well, it's great to have you here. We love this enthusiasm. You've been like a duck to water in your first few months at the Lodestar, and you've been covering some very complex stories some great breaking news exclusives on company news, regulations. How are you finding the industry? And how was the Tiaka event in Brussels? That was your first big industry event, was it? Yes, it was. Yeah, no, Tiaka was great. Obviously, like you said, I've only been here for, I think, less than two months. So to be told this early on that I was going on a trip to Brussels was so exciting for me. Um, I was quite nervous because, like you said, obviously it was my first event, so I wasn't really sure what to expect. But as soon as I got there, I instantly felt at ease. Everyone who I met really, really welcomed me to the industry with open arms. So I made some great connections and I also learned a lot while I was there. They showed us all around the back of the airport. So I got to see all the cargo handling facilities and there were some really insightful uh, presentations throughout the day. So yeah, definitely learned a lot. But I did also get my fair share of Belgian beer while I was there. So it wasn't all work. It's quite good that Belgian beer. I used to go over to the European Commission quite a lot and the Belgian beer was definitely one of the positive sides of that trip. 
<laughs> um, okay, oh, I'm glad it was fun. And we want to come back to some of your stories in a moment, but let's unpack this controversy that caused quite a stir at the event and resulted in some publications refusing to even quote the name of the Tiakara event that they were covering, at least temporarily. This links back to Air Cargo Week's director, Norman Bamford, selling his company to Air Cargo PR company Lemon Queen, which is owned by Audrey Sejebi. Lemon Queen was only set up in 2019 when Audrey left her post as chief communications officer and marketing officer for GSSA ECS Group. ECS Group then became Lemon Queen's first client and investor. I hope you're all with me. Uh, all that's right, is it, Alex? Yeah, that's correct. ECS took a share in Lemon Queen. They're um, a subsidiary. And Lemon Queen has three or four other clients now, maybe more. But it's quite it's quite complex sort of breaking down what happens in the media. And lots of people don't really understand why it's important. But um, I just want to explain. So if I want to interview one of Lemon Queen's clients, I would normally go through the PR company. I'd send them some topics and questions that I want to ask. The PR company will arrange a time and a date, get pictures and so on. But I've essentially given them my interview in advance, which is really my, my sort of USP. So if that PR company is also my competitor, then I can't really share with them the things I want to ask and what I'm going to write. So it's, a, it's slightly like a forwarder buying a carrier. Would other forwarders want to use that carrier? No. Would other carriers want to work with that forwarder? Probably not. So in my opinion, it's... For a PR company to buy a publication, it's, it's bad for the PR company's clients, it's bad for the publication, and that is all bad for the industry. I agree, Alex, yeah. I mean, it makes it hard for us to do our jobs properly with Lemon Queen's clients if we want to remain competitive as journalists. I think there's also commercial considerations. I mean, PR clients quite often ask the PR company for commercial advice or input, or even sometimes to allocate budgets. How do rival publications pitch a commercial deal to Lemon Queen clients if they're not sure who's got access to that information? Maybe we should get Nick Marsh on for his debut on the Low Star podcast. Are you listening, Nick? Um, there's nothing illegal going on here. Let me just make that clear. And we'll see how Air Cargo Week and Lemon Queen manage to balance these competing responsibilities, I guess we'll call them, while they're also trying to provide independent journalism. The thing is with this, right, and again, bear with us, everybody, because this actually does get more complicated. We've got this Jackson Pollock of a scenario, haven't we? Because the next step in this realist vision was the appointment of, um, I, I think I'm going to let you do this, but Alex, on, I might start laughing. Yeah, sure. So, so what happened was that as Lemon Queen announced it was taking over Air Cargo Week, it also announced that Stephen Polmans, who's chair of Tiaka, was going to become Air Cargo Week's managing director. Now, I, I personally think the Chiaka angle is, is adjacent, really, to the PR angle, the, the angle of a PR company taking over a publication. But there are a couple of issues here. One is that Air Cargo Week's main income, I, I suspect, is from selling event space at Munich and other shows. That's in direct competition to Chiaka's events. But that, that's something for Chiaka and its board to worry about. And the other issue, which I think is a bit more pertinent, is that I am of the opinion that the whole point of Chiaka is to identify and promote best business practice. And quite honestly, a PR company taking over a publication is very poor business practice. And with Stephen's appointment, it looks very much to me like Tiaka is endorsing something that I think is bad for the industry. And there's another point, which is it's very hard to understand 
why a struggling publication would bring in an airport consultant to run it. I mean, it's a really weird proposition. Uh, and, and that's ringing some warning bells to me. It would be quite strange if Brussels Airport, for example, hired me to go and take over its cargo business. It just doesn't make much sense, in my opinion. I don't know. I could see you at Gatwick, though, to be honest, Alex. <laughs> they could do with all the help they can get. Right. So you're over in Brussels. Then there's an agreement between Lodestar and various other independent titles, not to mention Tiaka in stories originating from the same Tiaka event. And then you had a showdown with Polman. What What did all this look like? I wish I'd been there. What was the outcome? <laughs> it was quite weird, I have to say. It turned out when all the media got together that um, there was even more upset about it than I thought they were. Some some media people were very hurt, some were very angry, and I was quite surprised at the general level of anxiety about it, really. Poor Stephen Palmer, I think he had quite a hard time. He, he really did get laid into quite significantly. And there was a sort of temporary agreement among some of the media, not to mention Tiaka, until we'd had a decent response from them. But it wasn't, to be honest, it wasn't just the media that were talking about it. Several Tiaka members spoke to me and they said that they were concerned about it and they wanted to check whether Tiaka's own bylaws have anything to say about a conflict of interest. This, of course, comes as the board changed its internal regulations to allow Stephen Pullman another two years as chair. Um, I've got to say, he's a very, I think he's a very good chair of Tiaka and I think he's done a really good job. But it has surprised me how little Tiaka and the industry understand the media and PR and really how important it is for the air cargo industry in general. I agree. I think Stephen's done a great job. And he, he's always been uh, very good to interview. He seems like one of the good guys out in the industry. So I'm very surprised he made this decision. It's all very incestuous. Uh, well, a PR company buying an industry title, appointing the chair of an industry institution as MD without anyone thinking how this looks. Actually, it is all a bit incestuous. I'm thinking dueling banjos and, and Bert Reynolds and Whitewater rafting through the next Siaka event, which you might have to go and look it up if you don't know your older movies. The point with all this being, though, that there's any numbers of conflicts of interest out there, and maybe they should have thought about the optics a little bit better. Perhaps they need a PR advisor. Alex? Yeah, just, just one more thing. You mentioned you liked interviewing Stephen Pullman's. And uh, yeah, he's he's great and he's interesting and all the rest of it. But um, I'm not going to interview the managing director of Air Cargo Week. I'm just not. So, you know, what's Jackie going to do about that? I don't know. Yeah, that is a very good point. Anyway, moving on, what was the general feeling in Brussels about the air cargo market? Was there a sense that Q4 is doing a little better than everyone was expecting? Charlotte, Alex, far away? I think slightly. I think um, e-commerce was definitely listed as the main driver of optimism as we go into Q4. Yeah, that was essentially the feeling on the ground was that um, all the current market growth is in is in B2C rather than B2B. Airlines don't really want general cargo. It's not yielding very much and there isn't very much anyway. So it looks like retail demand is really being driven by the online retailers rather than offline. And if you look at the inventory levels of the major shippers, They've certainly come down, but there are still excess goods knocking about the market. But that's a very different market to my teenagers buying their Christmas outfits online for a few quid, which seems to be what's basically holding up air cargo. Thanks, guys. Let's put some numbers on this then and have a look at the general economic environment. And who better to do this with than TAC Index's Neil Wilson. Hello, Neil. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Thanks for having me back online. 
Neil, let's get straight to it, I suppose. What's going on with air freight markets? We've discussed this before, in fact. We've had this sort of view that 2023 might be a bit of a damp squib in terms of the peak season, but uh, you've got positive news for us, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, I think we said we were cautious optimistic a month or two back that there would be a peak season bounce, if a modest one, and that's kind of what's happened. I mean, you know, we had that long fall post-COVID era peaks and no peak season last year. It was like there wasn't really anything. But so this year, we have had a rising market starting September. The overall World of the Air Break Index, which measures all the different routes weighted, is, was up about 11% in September, up about uh, two and a half again in October. And it's kept going up so far in November. We just had a very strong week to the November 13th. So where we are year on year, it's still something like 26% below where we were last year for that overall index. But we were down like you know 50% at some points earlier in the summer. So since the summer, there's been a significant rise. But below that, there's quite a lot of regional variability as well. It's been a hot market recently out of Hong Kong and China, particularly the e-commerce business out of southern China, a lot of which goes via Hong Kong. So if you look at those indices, we have you know the indices of outbound for Hong Kong, that's only about 17% below where it was last year. And Shanghai, after a recent bounce, is only about four and a half to five percent below where it was last year. We've had some significant increases in the rates, particularly on China, US, but also in China, Europe as well, in recent weeks. And anecdotally, what people would tell us is that that probably has some legs, not just through to the end of the year, through the traditional sort of Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year season, but through to Chinese New Year because of the forward bookings. Neil, you say this has got legs. Is this to do with an improving economic picture? Is that what you're saying? Or, I mean, it's been a very mixed picture about where we're going to have a recession, particularly around the US where consumer demand has been quite high. What's your take on that global picture at the moment in terms of the economics of it? Well, the the macro picture has been sort of cloudy for quite a while. We had concerns, obviously, we had the high energy prices, the gas price, particularly in Europe because of the Ukraine situation, oil prices um, spiking at various points. And then we had obviously a problem with inflation coming out of the COVID period and then higher interest rates. Interest rates have been bumped up you know, very severely in the short period. There seems to have been a pause recently, and then central banks have paused on that, but the question is how long are those rates going to be kept higher? Is that a new normal? You know, There's a problem with, with core inflation, not just the headline inflation. And will that lead to a recession? So far, it's not really happened, and that's partly because in the US, consumers have kept spending. So the the savings rate has been going down, and that's kept economic conditions relatively more buoyant. People built up their savings a lot in the COVID era with the lockdowns, been spending through them and, and, and continuing to spend so far. So we've avoided that recession so far. In Europe, the market's been more, you know, we, we've been borderline recession. Some economies like Germany, which is the biggest one, technically been in recession for a while. But in Europe also, I think partly because of the worries about the higher energy prices and things, the savings rate has stayed quite high. And that might mean that, that there is room with the gas price going down and energy costs going down for spending to increase again in Europe and also for there to be this, at least a pause on interest rates going up. So I, I think the overall picture is not as bad as it might have been. The, the energy prices dropped down to $80 a barrel. Today, obviously, there's something down a bit. So the outlook doesn't look too bad, except for, of course, the geopolitical factors which was a capacity to throw a spanner on the rise. On that inflation point, I was actually over at a grain conference in early November in Egypt, and uh, grain prices are actually quite low, despite Ukraine remaining under attack. And those, that is a key supplier of wheat 
And obviously that's a big factor when it comes to food pricing globally. So maybe there's some of these efforts to get inflation under control of bearing fruit, but we're still seeing predictions of recession in the US, for example, by some analysts. Yes, I think that there's a very strong debate about which way it's going to go. And it's very possible that, you know, so with, with higher interest rates, consumer spending has to be squeezed at some point. And we'll see that while there's been a pause on rates going up further, the, the rates at the, at the longer end of the spectrum are, are longer dated. Government bonds have been continued to go up. And that indicates that the people are expecting rates to be higher for longer, which to some people that indicates when you get that kind of thing happening, that, that, that there will be a recession. For others, it's a return to the new normal. I mean, it's, it's going back to what it was before the global financial crisis and the era of quantitative easing, where we had these abnormally low rates for a very long time. That maybe was the aberration. Rates of 4 or 5% typically were the norm before that. Maybe we're going back there, and that's maybe healthier in the long run. And obviously those interest rates that you talk about there, the the big determinants of what sort of investment levels we'll see right up and down the supply chain. Just come back to the market in November as we're, this is the normal traditional peak season. There has been some disruption on that key Trans-Pacific lane. In your your latest report, you talked about record snowfall in Alaska hitting Trans-Pacific volumes. Do you want to give us a little bit of insight and say why Alaska is so important in that route for starters? Well, a, a lot of the Trans-Pacific traffic stops over in Anchorage. And so if there is severe weather there, it can disrupt the amount of trade that there is. And so, for instance, in that second week of November, we had double-digit increases in the average rates, China, US. Uh, and that's perhaps because capacity is being hit there, which is something obviously we try to look at. So I think when there is bad weather in Alaska, that has side effects. There also might be further effects going forward. Things like the volcano in Iceland might affect transatlantic business to some extent. I mean, there are various factors in addition to the obvious geopolitical ones like Ukraine and gas that can have the capacity to impact market. I did have a chat to someone with a detailed knowledge of the air cargo operations at Ted Stevens Anchorage International Airport in, in Alaska, which, as you say, is key to that trans-Pacific trade. It's also the, the third largest cargo airport in the world after Hong Kong and Memphis. And ahead of Shanghai, actually, which always surprises me somehow, but it's used as a pit stop for refueling and also as a, you can transship your cargo for distribution around the US and vice versa. So it's a key cog in that system. And they said that there'd be 10 days of quite brutal snow in the first part of November and carriers were apoplectic was the word that was said to me. Um, And planes were stuck, parked on taxiways for over 12 hours at times. So yeah, that's been quite a significant disruptor as we're in the middle of the peak season, as you say, and it's had a big impact on pricing. All the disruptors, as I mentioned, I've just back from Egypt, uh, a lot of talk there about Gaza and uh, the role of politics in supply chains. And there's really no escaping this risk at the moment. We've got wars in the Black Sea in the Middle East, two wars at the same time, more or less for the first time since the Second World War. We've covered some of these geopolitical risks in the last Lodestar podcast, but how is that? playing out for you in terms of looking at this pricing in the air cargo market at the moment? Well, we're not seeing um, much immediate impact from the Gaza situation yet, but obviously everybody's aware that it can be. If you have a wider problem in that region, it would be hard to predict what the effect on the air traffic patterns might be if you get other countries getting involved and so forth, and then the, the normal patterns of traffic being disrupted. It has a capacity to, <laughs> pun intended, to affect capacity. <laughs> and therefore rates, and there could be short-term problems if that happened. Let's hope things improve in Black Sea in the Middle East and in part of Africa where we've had all these coups of late. 
And thank you very much for joining us today with all your great insight from TAC Index. It's a pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Charlotte, Neil mentioned uh, snowfall in Alaska there, disrupting those uh, Trans-Pacific operations. Very important stop-off point up at Anchorage. You chased this story down. How exactly was it impacting operations? Yes, well, I spoke with Sean Dolan earlier this week, and he is the CEO of Northlink Aviation, who are investing in Anchorage Airport. Um, And he told me that there was a total of 25.7 inches of snowfall between two storms across five days. And this left many aircraft stuck on taxiways for extended periods of time. He said that one was even there for 14 hours. And obviously, if planes are on the ground for longer, then it leads to more snow accumulation on the plane, which leads to longer de-icing times. So this meant extensive delays, and there were also multiple diversions to nearby airports, some in Alaska, as well as Canada, Seattle, and Portland. So it kind of affected the wider area, not just Anchorage. We're talking now, what, third week of November. Is it all resolved? Is is the snow gone? Yeah, well, at the moment, cargo operations seem to be back to normal, but that's not to say that there won't be another storm this winter. Sean did tell me that cargo infrastructure hasn't been expanded at Anchorage in over 20 years. So they don't have much mitigation in place if it does happen again. So fingers crossed they don't get another storm this winter. Well, I know from Sean that he's looking to step into that particular gap and we're watching his uh, his new operation as that sort of takes off over the next year or two. Thank you, Charlotte. I was interested in what's driving this Asian market, particularly from a forwarding perspective. Uh, so I had a chat with DHL Stefan Treba, who's the Senior Vice President for Air Freight in the Asia Pacific at DHL Global Forwarding. I started by asking him what's been driving this peak season in terms of product launches uh, and how all this is looking by origin. We are definitely in the peak season now. We recognize increased demand for air cargo services, which is a combination of new product launches, such as consumer goods fashion items and electronics after the golden week, but mainly driven by the e-commerce demand out of South China and Hong Kong into markets such as Americas and Europe. Stefan, TAC Index's Neil Wilson, who we heard earlier on this podcast, believes that there could be legs in uh, in this demand boost. Is, is that how you see it? Is this something that might keep the air cargo industry busy, maybe through to Chinese New Year? At this moment, it's difficult to judge whether that's going to be a lasting impact up to Chinese New Year, or it's rather a short-term peak. We would expect that in particular, additional air cargo will begin to normalize as of mid of December, uh, uh, towards end of December. Uh, At the same time, of course, the question mark is uh, how the e-commerce demand will continue beyond that or not. Uh, Chinese New Year next year is, is mid of February only. So eventually market will normalize beginning of January and then picking up uh, towards the end of January, early February, prior to Chinese New Year holidays. More generally, Stefan, where's the risk? Where's the upside as you're looking forward? The yeah, cargo market is recovering, albeit quite slowly. Global capacity has improved by about 5% compared to quarter four 2022. It has uh, been consistently increasing since end of quarter one, beginning of quarter two this year. 
where we recognize all value capacities coming back into the markets, with the exception of China on the Trans-Pacific, where we still have some restrictions on the slot times. Particularly in Asia, we also see a strong demand for e-commerce, which is tightening the capacity in particular now in quarter four. So the question is, if that trend is now persisting or not, but overall, we would be expecting an improved volume growth for next year and highly likely more towards the second half in 2024. Alex Atiaka, you spoke to Yoshi Shakrun on the sidelines. He's CEO of the Challenge Group, which offers all sorts of air cargo and logistics services, but whole bunch of subsidiaries, quite, quite a diverse group. I'll play a little bit from your interview in a moment, but he made some interesting points about global sourcing. This is China plus one and all the rest of it, nearshoring, farshoring, allyshoring, friendshoring. There's so much of it around. Uh, he was quite bullish on e-commerce, wasn't he? Yeah, you're, you're right. Challenge is a really interesting company. It focuses on well, challenging cargo, like horses, big items, specialised products. Um, but via its hub in Liège, where Tiny Hour is based in Europe, it also has quite a lot of e-commerce. Yossi was really interesting. He talked about inflation pushing up costs, driving companies to source from cheaper parts of Asia, as well as a China plus one strategy. So essentially a change in sourcing. But he also made the point that it's not just sourcing that's changing, it's buying as well. So the Chinese are now consuming much more and they want to buy e-commerce from the EU and the US and Africa's got more e-commerce customers than it did, so South America. So essentially, it's not just Western customers buying Chinese goods. Everyone is buying everyone's goods. And so there'll be a, 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 tra a trade lane difference, really, is what he was saying. Let's listen to a clip from that interview and explains this some of that in a bit more detail. Speaking about e-commerce, so everybody is... Uh... I know the industry is speaking about B2C and, and, and B2B2C, which means uh, in between you have a fulfillment warehouse and all this business model of e-commerce. So, but the idea of business, if we want to be, let's say, um, in this market, we need to understand, first of all, the challenges, how to be time to market and efficient. So what the e-commerce industry understood after the COVID is two things. They don't need to rely on belly capacity and more on cargo and work with hubs, okay? This will make the cost per unit on the total supply chain much lower and time to market fast. This is what they understand, but it was easy for them to understand it when most of the production was in China and basically the challenge was all of airplanes out of China you to the world and then last mile providers and as much as possible subsotics. Now, what we are seeing now is that most of the production, because of cost of life and production costs, they move to South Asia, India, Bangladesh, all those areas. Yeah. Then we see some of it to North Africa and South America, Turkey. Okay, we have textiles, some, some of it. The other thing is that the, the Chinese themselves become consumers. So they want the Gucci, they want the, the Chanel. So the next challenge is not... What we, I call it C2G, which is mm. China to global. Mm. Now the next challenge is the global to global. And what does that mean for airlines? Does it mean that your backhaul is now balanced? Does it mean that there is no frontal backhaul? I think, what, what does it mean? What, what, what does it mean? It means that, I mean, I don't know about airlines. I can't speak about myself. 
It means that I have to be ready not to give answers only for e-commerce coming from China to Europe, but also e-commerce going out from Europe to China, to USA, from USA to Europe. So there is not only traditionally we are speaking about e-commerce, China, Europe, or China, the globe. Now we see e-commerce coming from USA to Europe. And then we see also other continents that are starting to join. We see some of African markets. We see also South American markets are starting to consume. So it means that we need to adapt ourselves to this change. Alex, in the last Lodestar podcast, we looked at geopolitical trends and whether, just a small topic, whether we're seeing the death of globalization. This is, ties in with the idea that if there's less globalization, then we might have more regional supply chains and this will impact trade as the world becomes more fragmented. Yoshi was talking there about this global to global concept. It sort of ties in with some of these trends, but what does it mean specifically for air cargo in terms of the demand element? Is this shorter routes, is it? Is, is it a different type of aircraft? To be honest, I've never heard a global airline admit publicly that the logical conclusion of nearshoring is shorter routes. It's just not what they want to hear or say, frankly. But what I did ask was whether that meant backhaul would get stronger. And the answer was no, really, to be short. According to McKinsey, there's a percentage of the market, about 15 to 20 percent of global trade that will shift because of China plus one. And Yossi and others agreed that China will still actually be dominant. It won't disappear overnight. But of course, you're getting destinations like Vietnam, India, Malaysia, Turkey, and so on. And they're going to see a few more volumes. And McKinsey reckoned that these trends won't have a negative impact on air cargo. So there's that. We keep discussing e-commerce. Everyone on this podcast is saying e-commerce, e-commerce. It's driving the market at the moment. But we've got a big listenership of forwarders. They haven't really known what to do with e-commerce over the years. Are, are we seeing any new strategies emerging? Well, to an extent, I think forwarders have been quite slow to embrace e-commerce, mostly because it requires a lot of new skills and quite a lot of new investment. You've got to get final miles sorted. You've got distribution centers. You're going to have to have technology fulfillment. And there's a long list of things that are outside of the normal scope of traditional forwarding. It's That kind of has been the realm of Amazon and the integrators up until now. And it's been harder for the sort of patchwork of stakeholders needed for e-commerce to come together with a coherent product to match that level of integration. But some airlines have now got their act together. I'm thinking particularly of Lufthansa and its subsidiary Hayworld. And smaller forwarders in particular are starting to create networks and partnerships. So Neutral Air Partner, which is a sort of wholesaling network, they said it's e-commerce is now their highest growth sector. So we are seeing as a, a change towards it, but it's, it requires investment if you want to do it yourself or really good partnerships if you don't. What we are seeing from forwarders is some of them are working a bit more closely with carriers. Charlotte Flexport is now working with WestJet to fill its Trans-Pacific freighters. What's going on there? Can you give us a few more details? Yeah, well, earlier this year, Flexport leased three 747-400 freighters from Atlas Air, uh, which seemed quite optimistic given the current market and the mismatch between supply and demand that everyone's been talking about. And Flexport CEO Ryan Peterson previously admitted that the only way that these freighters would actually be profitable was to build up an export on the backhaul Trans-Pacific routes from the US to Asia. Uh, so it seems like now WestJet are fulfilling that. 
and they will bring Canadian exports, mainly perishables like seafood, to Chicago O'Hare Airport, where the Flexport freighters will then take those on the backhaul to places like Shanghai, Hong Kong and South Korea. I think some people in Canada weren't too happy about this because they felt like Canadian exports should go directly from Canada rather than take a trip to Chicago and then go on from there. Alex, another relationship between a carrier, uh, it's a little bit closer than Flexport and WestJet. It's uh, SIVA, which is part of the CMA CGM group. You did a story about that relationship based on chatting to a whistleblower and about, well, I think it's about how the relationship is working, but maybe if you're a competitor, it's maybe about how it's not working for you. Can you explain? Well, yeah, that's more like it, really. Um, I mean, the market, if you talk to forwarders, they've known or suspected for a long time that forwarders booking on CMA CGM have been worried that it's not a neutral carrier. And now we've actually got a whistleblower who's claimed and, and shown that forwarders should be concerned that the carrier group may possibly be using some of that information to its advantage, which has surprised absolutely no one. But now CMA is looking to integrate Bonnore to which I think will finish in, in Q1. So it's got even more forwarding on its books. So I think its line about being neutral, that it does trot out quite a lot, is likely to be heard less often now. And people are saying it's really more in the MERS category of integrated services. I know we have quite a few people from CMA, CGM and from Siva who listen in, and they are more than welcome to come on and explain that relationship in a bit more detail. Please get in touch, MikeKing121 at gmail.com. Now, one more story I can't not talk about. Polar Air Cargo has been the news a lot of late as various executives defrauded the company for over a decade. That's just, I can't put it any other way. Now, there's plenty on that story on the lodestar.com, but there's also a few rumors about Polar, which is owned by Atlas Air and DHL, and what its owners may or may not do with it. Over to you, Alex Lenane. Well, this may or may not be a non-story, to be honest, but, you know, we've heard that Apollo was interested in Atlas stepping, Apollo is Atlas's owner, we've heard that it was interested in stepping away from, from Polar Air. Polar Air is 49% owned by DHL, 51% by Atlas Air. It's a US airline, so it has to be majority owned by and controlled by a US company. And then the word on the street was that Apollo was looking to step away. Atlas can't sell Polar to DHL. So it would have to have a US investor. But, and this is where it changes, Atlas told me today that there's nothing in this rumor at all. In fact, it said Atlas Air highly values its majority ownership of Polar Air Cargo and our long-standing relationship with DHL Express. We remain committed, along with DHL, to our joint venture partnership in Polar. So we will see if that remains the case. Well, if sworn blind it is, so I'm sure it is. Charlotte, one final story, which has big implications as we look ahead. You've been looking at the implementation of the EC's forthcoming emissions trading system, ETS, as it's popularly known. I'll try and summarize this a little bit. ETS requires shipping lines operating in Europe to surrender to authorities so-called EU allowances. These are EUAs. These are essentially carbon credits that correspond with fleet emissions for the previous year. This applies not just to shipping within the EU, but also shipments to and from the EU. This essentially means shipping companies will have to start purchasing EUAs on an ongoing basis from the first day of next year in the run-up to an initial deadline in September 2025. So this 1st of January deadline, Charlotte, 
We covered this a bit in the October interview with Lars Jensen, of CEO of Vespucci Maritime. There's a bit of skepticism out there about how carriers might pass these costs on to customers. We're starting to get some numbers on this, aren't we? What's it looking like? Yeah, well, at the moment, the surcharge estimates from carriers are all pretty varied. Asia to North Europe trade sits anywhere between 12 to 35 euros. Asia to Mediterranean is between 7 and 23 euros. And Europe to North America is between 9 and 43 euros. Hapag Lloyd seem to be offering the cheapest and Maersk seem to be sitting at the more expensive end of the scale. But all that said, these have all been subject to change. And the carriers have said they will probably re-release these closer to actual implementation. So it seems like not even they know what to expect. Thanks for that, Charlotte. And thanks for coming on today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Mike. Alex, Lodestar Publisher, no less. Thanks for coming on today once more. Thanks, Mike. Always fun. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider, and Zenita, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon. 